Psalm 30. This psalm was written by King David. I will exalt you, O Lord, for you lifted me out of the depths and did not let my enemies gloat over me. O Lord my God, I called to you for help and you healed me. O Lord, you brought me up from the grave. You spared me from going down into the pit. Sing to the Lord, you saints of his. Praise his holy name. For his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping may remain for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. When I felt secure, I said, I shall never be shaken. O Lord, when you favored me, you made my mountain stand firm. But when you hid your face... I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I called. To the Lord, I cried for mercy. What gain is there in my destruction, in my going down into the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it proclaim your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my help. You turned my wailing into dancing. You removed my sackcloth and you clothed me with joy, that my heart may sing to you and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give you thanks forever. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Simon Pedley. I'm one of the assistant ministers here. Uh, The Psalms, like every other part of the Bible, tell us about God, but the way they do that is through songs. Uh, the, the book of Psalms is the songbook of the Bible. So as we look at Psalm 30 together, we're, we're looking at lyrics, lyrics which were set to music thousands of years ago. Uh, we have absolutely no idea what the music sounded like. I imagine if we somehow managed to dig up a recording, it would sound utterly bizarre to our ears. Um, but we, we have the lyrics and they contain a, an outpouring of the experience of one of God's people, uh, an outpouring of feelings that we can understand, which we can make our own. So as we approach Psalm 30, let's pray that God will use this ancient outpouring of experiences and feelings of a believer from thousands of years ago to align our own responses to God. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for this book of songs in the Bible. Thank you for the treasures there. Uh, thank you so much for revealing yourself through the songs of your people. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to understand this precious song this morning. Help us, Lord, to be molded and shaped by it, that our response might look like the kind of response you've called us to. In Jesus' name, amen. A question to start, how do you express yourself in times of joy? Do you express yourself in times of joy? Uh, Do you express yourself to God in times of joy? For example, as as we read through uh, Psalm 30 just then, uh, what kind of music would you imagine it being set to? Don't worry about trying to tune into thousands of years old music, but with lines like... um, you turned my mourning into dancing. You removed my sackcloth and clothed me with joy. Surely it's got to be something 
uh, that gets you foot tapping, something pretty jaunty, energetic, something infectious. Uh, the other day, Matt Fuller and I were chatting about this psalm, and uh, we both remembered singing a, a setting of this. Uh, it was very contagious musically. I won't inflict you with it this morning, don't worry. Um, I've got a frown from the front row. Don't worry, that's not the plan. Uh, <laughs> it, uh, my memory of it is, is full of sort of Latin dance riffs and trumpets and whistles and all sorts of catchy stuff going on. David, who, who wrote this psalm, intends the joy of it to be infectious. Because what we have here is something of an invitation. There's some sort of event taking place. Uh, If you look at the title of the psalm, just above verse 1, we're on page 558, if you've turned away from it. Uh, It's called A Psalm, A Song for the Dedication of the Temple of David. Now, other translations say it was for the dedication of the palace rather than the temple. The original word just says a house. Uh, It's a song for a dedication of a house. In other words, the song was written for a housewarming party of some sort. Uh, So picture us all gathered uh, with David, with a crowd of people for a housewarming party. And uh, David is about to sing to us. Uh, that kind of thing can be pretty embarrassing, can't it? If you go to a wedding or a party of some sort and the host has written a song and as soon as they open their mouths, you think, oh, no, this is going to be pretty awful. Uh, the singing is kind of bad pub karaoke variety and uh, we've all got to sit politely through it and smile. Um, thankfully, it's not like that. We know from elsewhere in the Bible, David was an excellent musician, so we're in for a treat. And as the song begins, uh, David does two things. He pours out his own praise to God, and he invites God's people to join with his praise. So you can see David's own praise in verses 1 to 3, which starts, I will exalt you, O Lord. And then the invitation comes in verses 4 to 5. Sing to the Lord, you saints of his. Praise his holy name. So this is an invitation to a praise party with David, an invitation to join with him in singing God's praise in joyful times. Now, how, how do you feel about that before we get into the detail of it? Uh, you're invited to a praise party to express your joy, your thanks to God. Uh, I guess some of us are, are more comfortable with outbursts of joy than others. Uh, some individuals and cultures do outbursts of joy very differently from others, uh, other individuals and cultures. I would hate to stereotype any particular individuals and cultures. We won't get there, but I remember... When I uh, passed my driving test when I was 17, all of my friends who'd passed their tests had gone pretty nuts with celebration when they passed theirs. Um, And I remember having nothing to say as I sat in the car with my driving instructor, having passed the test. I was just sort of sitting there in stunned silence trying to work out what had just happened. And uh, this poor chap was a great friend of mine and of my parents. I hope I remembered to thank him, but I I just wasn't reacting in any way. Uh, We're all different. Um, And I take it that David is inviting us to express our joyful praise in whatever way that is appropriate to our our personalities and our cultures. So don't get too concerned about that. But David is inviting us to sing and maybe to dance because of our joy. So do be concerned about that. Let's uh, look at David's song in more detail. Um, In verses 1 to 5... He sings about the occasion, not the the house warming or the temple warming or whatever building warming it is, 
Um, David doesn't mention the building again at all. He sings about an occasion when God rescued him from times of trouble. Uh, So that's our our heading from verses 1 to 5. The occasion of this joy is God's rescue from times of trouble. And he sings in verse 1, I will exalt you, O Lord. Why? For you lifted me out of the depths. God has done something for David, some extraordinary rescue. And uh, the poetic language of the psalm, um, David expresses it in a variety of ways that could spark off all kinds of possibilities in our minds as to what has happened. Uh, He says, Lord, you have lifted me out of the depths. God had taken hold of David and pulled him out of some deep place of danger. I know this has been mentioned in sermons galore over the the last year or so. It's hard not to bring back to mind those pictures of the Chilean uh, miners lifted from the depths of the collapsed mine by that uh, that phoenix capsule, emerging safe to meet family and friends, all looking uh, cool and, and slightly like the Blues Brothers with their extra protective sunglasses that they were wearing. But do you remember the, the, the outpouring of emotion as each one got to the top, as they cried tears of joy, as they embraced family member after family member after president after mining minister, uh, their wives and their children, anyone else who was within hugging distance got a hug. Remember the flags and the music and the dancing. Something about South Americans. I, I said we weren't going to do cultural stereotypes, but they seem to do that very well. Here's David doing exactly the same thing, responding to being lifted from the depths by pouring out his joy to God in a song. He carries on in verse 1. You did not let my enemies gloat over me. Think of the end of World War II. Have you ever seen footage of uh, those pictures of celebrations on the streets of London at the end of the war? The years of the, uh, the fear and the hardship and the bereavement did nothing to stop that overwhelming outpouring of celebration when victory and peace finally came. He goes on in verse 2 to say, I called for help and you healed me. You healed me. Just after we moved to this church last summer, I was coming through the gate into our, our block of flats where we moved and there was an elderly gent on crutches who very slowly, very painfully was being helped out of the, uh, the car. I think it was a taxi that had brought him to the gate of the block. And it was a slow and painful struggle. But he had a huge smile on his face. And there was quite a gathering of people, I think his family, who also had huge smiles on their faces, grinning away. And as I walked past, I had a quick chat with one of them. And uh, they explained, this is a very significant homecoming. This chap had been ill for a very long time, had been away from home, had been in a hospital bed for a long, long time, but was coming home at last after making a recovery. And there was joy and gratitude written all over everybody's face. And in verse 3, David uses the strongest possible language for this rescue that God has uh, granted him. O Lord, you brought me up from the grave. You spared me from going down to the pit. Death, it sounds, had been very much a possibility. So much so that David felt, in a sense, that he was already in the grave before God lifted him up. I bet those Chilean miners felt like that as they were buried 
entombed underground. I bet Londoners felt like that as they walked the bomb-strewn streets of the city during the war. I bet my elderly neighbor felt like that as he was confined to that bed for months on end. All of them were able to look back and celebrate that rescue as if from death with amazing joy. Now, what on earth was David so joyful about being rescued from? I don't think he was speaking uh, necessarily about his conversion, um, his uh, uh, accepting God and putting faith in God for the first time. Even though we often use these sorts of images for that, we rightly say that as we come to Jesus, God lifts us from the depths of our sin and saves us from death by means of Jesus' death. But later on in this psalm, David is going to talk about already knowing God's favor before whatever happened that he was rescued from, before this crisis hit. So it seems to be something that happened to David as a believer, rather than his initial conversion or his salvation. But if it is a specific crisis, David doesn't actually give us any clues as to what it was. Uh, Even that word for heal in verse 2 could mean restore in a more general sense. Uh, We just don't know what event lies behind this psalm. But you know what? It's brilliant that we don't know, in a way. I'm sure that's deliberate, because it means that you and I can read this psalm, and in all kinds of circumstances, we can make it our own. These words can be directly transferred to situations that we find ourselves in. It can apply whenever God lifts us up from some kind of big fear or danger or sorrow, no matter how big, no matter how small. It's deliberately left open for us, in a sense, to fill in the blanks with our own story of rescue. It could be that he's lifted us out of a time of depression or a particularly bad bout of that. It could be that we've been lifted out of unemployment, uh, been granted a job. Maybe a relationship that's been sour and difficult has been restored. It could be we've been ill, even in a small way, a particularly nastily mild dose of man flu and recovered uh, or even smaller things remember that uh, tic-tac advert uh, the little tic-tacs that run around helping somebody uh, and then the end line is another refreshing little lift from tic-tac uh, you thought you'd missed the bus but then suddenly you made it unexpectedly all of life's rescues from the tiny to the enormous are given in a sense by god he's the sovereign one there's no other source ultimately, of those little rescues or big rescues. And that's why David can issue his invitation in verse 4. Sing to the Lord, you saints of his. Praise his holy name. So if you've been rescued in a big way or a small way, come and sing, come and praise. Now, we've been talking about big rescues and small rescues, but verse 5 puts it all into the same light. For Christians... All our trouble, all of our troubles are momentary. His anger lasts only a moment compared with the favor which God will show us for a lifetime. And even more than a lifetime, as we know, on into eternity. Now, two questions arise from verse 5, which we need to cover. First question, why the mention of God's anger? Surely, for those who trust in Jesus, God's anger was taken fully, completely, on the cross as Jesus died for us. 
And that is absolutely true. God is not angry in that judgmental sense, that punishment sense, with his saints, his people, who he has loved and welcomed into his family. That's not the kind of anger we're talking about. We, if we trust in Jesus, don't experience that kind of anger from God. But like a loving parent, God disciplines those that he loves. Now, I remember a friend of mine uh, at school who said that her mum only ever smacked her once. Now, this is not a, uh, any kind of policy on smacking that I'm putting forward. But, of course, because she was only smacked once, she remembered it very, very vividly. And that one occasion was when she ran out into the road in front of a car. Now, looking back, would she say that her mum was angry that day? In a sense, yes. (laughs) In a sense, she was more angry that day than at any other time, hence the smack. But there was nothing sinister, nothing to fear in that anger. Of course not. My friend is deeply grateful that her mum showed her enough love to show her that moment of anger even though it was upsetting and hurtful at the time. And that, I think, is the kind of anger that verse 5 is speaking of. The kind anger of a loving father, which seeks only our good, only our safety, even if it is upsetting or painful while it lasts. Reading verse 5, there's a danger, if we were to take it out of context, uh, that we imagine God having a, a bad-tempered moment, a kind of angry outburst, after which he calms down, and then you've got a lifetime. Uh, but it's nothing like that. There's nothing to be feared, nothing sinister about this loving anger of God. As Romans 8 tells us, God works in all things for the good of those who love him, even in our suffering, which Romans 8 speaks of a great deal as well. God is at work showing this loving protecting, disciplining kind of anger. Second question about verse 5. How can David say that God's anger or his loving discipline lasts only a moment? In some instances, uh, that is true. But what about those faithful Christians whose suffering is long and unrelenting? Surely it's a callous thing to try to say that their suffering is only for a moment. Well, David isn't minimizing suffering, how horrendous it can feel. Remember that that strong language he used of feeling as if he was in the depths, the grave, the pit, feeling as if death had got hold of him. He'd had a horrendous time of it himself. Verse 5 isn't saying that God's discipline only lasts a moment or one night uh, uh, in a, a sort of absolute sense, but it's a poetic comparison with the favor that will last for a lifetime. The comparison says this, however long your suffering lasts, it will be like a moment in comparison to his favor, which lasts a lifetime, namely an eternal lifetime. His anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Listen to some words from um, Johnny Erickson Tada, who uh, was paralyzed in an accident and left as a, a quadriplegic for 43 years so far. She says this, The best we can hope for in this life is a not-whole peek at the shining realities ahead. Yet a glimpse is enough. It's enough to convince our hearts that whatever sufferings and sorrows 
currently assail us, they aren't worthy of comparison to that which awaits over the horizon. Whatever troubles are weighing you down are not chains, they are featherweight when compared to the glory yet to come. Over those 43 years, paralyzed in a wheelchair, she has earned the right to tell us that. God's loving discipline is momentary in comparison with the joy that follows. David goes on in verse 5, Weeping may remain for a night, but joy will come in the morning. Weeping is like an unwanted guest who invites himself in and imposes himself on your hospitality and you wonder if he's ever going to go away. Well, he will. Morning will come, weeping will be gone, and joy will follow. That is the occasion. That is God restoring David, bringing him great joy after rescuing him from trouble. And it is an occasion repeated over and over again, the same pattern, the same kind of occasion throughout the lives of God's people. I once heard a talk where the speaker asked a a rather bizarre question. What is God's favorite shape? Uh, We sat there thinking, don't know, a cross. Uh, A heart, because he loves us. Uh, A human being, because he became one of us and died. I don't know, don't know. Um, uh, No idea. And the answer was a tick, which didn't enlighten us at all. Uh, That's even more confusing. In what sense is God's favorite shape a tick? Uh, Well, here's why. In the shape of a tick, it kind of starts off in the middle. You start off doing okay. And then the line goes down. There's trouble, there's danger, there's disaster. And there, at that low point, that bottom point, God intervenes and lifts and rescues and restores so that at the end of the tick, you're not back where you started, you're somewhere far, far better because of what God has done in great joy at the the top of the tick. So that's the pattern, a tick, a sort of brief downward blip followed by a great rescue and great joy. Uh, And the the guy giving this talk was saying, that kind of works on a global scale. You've got humanity, uh, God made us, Uh, we're there at the start, and then we, we rebelled, we fell. And then we were rescued, brought to greater joy. Uh, So the whole of the history of the universe, in a sense, is that tick, which is kind of mirrored in this psalm. Uh, Jesus himself experienced that tick, in a way. He came to suffer and die for us, and then was restored to great joy at the Father's side. We experience our conversion as a tick, in a sense. We become aware of our fallenness, and then God lifts us up, to salvation and joy in Christ. But these ticks are everywhere, not just on the, the big scale, but on a, a small scale as well. God, because of his loving discipline, gives us trouble at times in our lives so that he might show his rescue and bring us to great joy. The end point of the tick is this great joy. So you pass an exam, tick. God has brought you through trouble to greater joy. You recover from being ill. Tick. God has brought you from sickness to to joy. You're reconciled to someone after a strange relationship. Tick. God has brought you to that joy. Whenever we, we see that shape in our lives, David invites us to join him and sing for joy with him, pouring out our, our praise to God. 
And for the rest of David's song, he tells us uh, the story of that tick, how he moved from the beginning to the middle to the end, from going down in the depths and to being lifted up to joy. We're going to run very briefly through what happened in those verses. In verses 6 and 7, he says, When I felt secure, I said, I shall never be shaken. O Lord, when you favored me, you made my mountain stand firm. Now here's where David started off at the beginning of the tick shape. Here's the reason for God's temporary anger or loving discipline. David says, look, this is how it all got started. I was on uh, that side of the tick. Things were going okay. I knew God. I felt his favor. I knew that. He made me stand firm for a time. So firm that I felt like a mountain, unmovable, unshakable. And I got complacent. I started to feel secure in a self-sufficient kind of way. I started to think that I could look after myself. I said to myself, I'll never be shaken. I can stand up for myself. And I started arrogantly thinking that I could do that without really trusting in God. Well, here's the warning, David. You're at the wrong end of the tick. God has blessed you, given you his favor, but you're not praising him for that blessing. And Proverbs 16 says pride comes before a fall. When God's children are proud, God knows that a fall will do us good. So in verses 7 to 9, the bubble is burst. The end of verse 7. When you hid your face, I was dismayed. Having shown David favor, God now hides his face from David. The blessings and the security which he'd taken for for granted suddenly just crumble around him. And he falls from that place of complacency. And he's now in the middle of the tick. He's hitting rock bottom. He's feeling the anguish and the insecurity and the pain of the trouble that God has given him, of being there in the middle. And there seem to be a couple of major changes in his attitude as he's there during this time of trouble. Firstly, he discovers a new humility. He cries out to God for mercy in verse 8. To you, O Lord, I called. To the Lord, I cried for mercy. He's no longer self-reliant. He's no longer proud. A humble David in the middle of this tick sees his need and turns to God for mercy and help. And secondly, a new perspective. He suddenly wakes up to what his life is actually for. Namely, praising God. In verse 9 he says, What gain is there in my destruction, in my going down into the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it proclaim your faithfulness? In other words, I'm made to praise you, Lord. That's what my life is for. If I go on sinking down in this route of self-reliance and end up being destroyed, of going to the pit without rescue, what's the point of that? What a waste. To be in the middle of the tick with no rescue is a pointless, tragic waste. I don't know if you've come across a guy called Dan Woolley. You may have heard of him. He was an American Christian who was in Haiti at the time of the earthquake, which was uh, around this time last year. 
he was on the ground floor of a six-story hotel when the whole building collapsed. And uh, he found himself trapped inside a, a lift. Uh, that was essentially what saved him. Um, but here's what he says. Uh, I'm going to read a, a passage from uh, a blog that he's written since then. I doubted anyone could really find me. Death here seemed likely. So what would come next? As I examined my heart and my relationship with God, I knew it was a far cry from where it should be. It's not a good thing to be facing the big conversation with God and not feel comfortable with where you stand. But I knew that God in his grace always accepts a contrite heart. So I came to him in humility, begging for forgiveness, for leaving him out of my life in many ways, for giving him some kind of lip service rather than all heart service for months, even years. And at the end of a time of prayer and contrition, I heard distinctly God's voice saying, you are mine. And for me, that was all I needed. His grace was truly sufficient, despite my unfaithfulness, despite my flakiness and failures. God had chosen me as his own, and he was reclaiming me right here and now. I wept like a little baby for some time. God was promising his protection, though I knew that protection might not be limited to physical protection in life, but could include death and transport to heaven. Yet how comforting it was to find that God's words to me in the, that most vulnerable moment of my life had such a profound promise of his love, his choosing, his presence, and his protection. Now, he was there for another 60 hours, trapped. Uh, but he's never been the same, as you can imagine. Uh, the humility, the change of perspective that that brought uh, has utterly transformed him. And at the bottom of the tick, when things look utterly hopeless, we can find a, a new humility and a new perspective, just like Dan Woolley, <laughs> just like David in this psalm. And that's so often why God brings us to that place, so that we can look back on it with gratitude, even with joy, maybe even a joy that we can know in the midst of that trouble. And so that's where David finds himself right at the end of this psalm. His joy is restored in verses 11 and 12. Uh, because of that song I mentioned at the beginning, I always hear these verses with music in my head, and uh, there's something very appropriate about that. Uh, you turned my wailing into dancing. You removed my sackcloth and clothed me with joy that my heart may sing to you and not be silent. O oh Lord my God, I will give thanks. I give you thanks forever. At the end of this tick, the, the, the pattern of God's work in his people is immense joy. Joy, like the celebrations of the Chilean miners, like the moment Dan Woolley was pulled out of trouble to see his rescuers. Uh, when Johnny Erickson Tata will stand in the new creation with her perfected new body. A moment that will usher in an eternity of God's favor in comparison with 43 years, a brief moment of affliction. That's the story of God's work, the pattern of his loving discipline. And this psalm invites us to find ourselves in that pattern. Most of all, more than anything else, we're invited by this psalm to express the joy of being restored. So we're back to my question at the start. How do we express ourselves to God in times of joy? 
Throughout this psalm, David says, Sing, praise, rejoice, dance. When God has lifted you, praise him for it. That's what we're made for, to praise God. In particular, sing and dance. Uh, Music is a a gift from God with an amazing ability to uh, help us express and align uh, our emotions. Why do we sing when we could just speak? Because music is a a God-given language of the heart. We can express our joy and delight in God better with music than we could without. So if singing together helps us to a greater joy in the gospel and helps us to feel it and express it, then we're doing something to live in Psalm 30. Of course, music can be used to manipulate, so it shouldn't ever be in the driving seat. Music's a, a grateful response to the works of God, not the other way around. But wherever there is a work of God, wherever he pours out his grace and his mercy and his love, wherever people find themselves going from one end of that tick to the other, you'll tend to find people singing. And quite often people dancing as well. Uh, When we're gathered together praising God in song, lifting our voices to him, we're not just reminding ourselves of truth, though we are doing that. We're not just speaking to God together in prayer, though we are doing that. We're not just helping God's word to to dwell richly in our hearts or being filled with the spirit, although both of those things are going on as we sing according to the New Testament. As well as all of those things... We're expressing joy. Joy and singing are linked together countless times in the Psalms. Other emotions are too. But joy, more than uh, all of them. And there's a great verse in James 5.13 which says this. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. So, with my music ministry hat, let me encourage all of our musicians... Part of your job is to help us express our joy. And we are very grateful to you uh, for doing that. Please don't stop. Please keep working out how we can better and better express our joy in song in culturally appropriate ways, of course. But thank you for serving us. You are one of God's great gifts to the church. And let me encourage all of us, don't be afraid to enjoy singing praise to God. If you're aware of God's goodness to you in any area of life, let your joy come out as you sing. And who knows, maybe dance. It's there in verse 11. It's not commanded, but uh, it's certainly described. Uh, There's a stereotype out there of some evangelical churches in Britain, and I I would hesitate to say whether we're part of that group or not, uh, that says their joy is so deep that it's undetectable. Um, And that's not an entirely fair thing to say here. But um, Psalm 30 says, if your joy is ever invisible, make it visible if you can. Don't be silent when God's been good. He's given us many, many reasons to be joyful. We're made to praise him. So let's make the most of the gift of music when it helps us to do that. Let's pray. Father, you are the rescuing God, and we see that supremely at the cross. But we see it day by day, year by year, throughout our lives. Because you're the sovereign God who is in control of every circumstance, we know that you're working all things for our good. Lord, help us to come to you with joy when we have things to praise and thank you for. Help us to sing on Sundays full of joy. 
We thank you for the gift of music and the way it helps us to express that. Lord, we do ask that you would help us to, uh, to live in Psalm 30 a bit more than we do. Help us to show joy when we feel it. That we might give you the glory, that others would see that glory and praise you too. In Jesus' name, amen.